Definitively Speaking is a definitive healthcare podcast series recorded and produced in Framingham, Massachusetts. To learn more about healthcare commercial intelligence, please visit us at definitivehc.com. Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of Definitively Speaking, a podcast about finding your way in the complex healthcare marketplace. I'm Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer of Definitive Healthcare, and your host for this series of data-driven conversations with thought leaders and experts from across the healthcare industry. On today's episode, I had a chance to chat with Michael Greeley, co-founder and general partner at Flair Capital Partners, one of the leading healthcare and healthcare IT venture capital firms in the world. Michael and I had a wide-ranging conversation covering everything from hot places to invest to the retailization of healthcare and everything in between. Let's dive right into my conversation with Michael. I hope you enjoy. It's Michael. Welcome. Great to see you, Justin. You look younger every day. (laughs) I wish. I wish, I wish, I wish. So, Michael, you and I have known each other like a long time, almost two decades at this point. I, I think we met way back when you were at Flybridge Capital Partners. You had like a networking session at MIT. You know, way back when you had a more broad based approach, you invested across multiple industries. But in 2014, you left Flybridge to start Flare Capital, where you focused exclusively on healthcare and healthcare IT. What opportunity did you see that drove such a dramatic shift in your investing? You know, it's probably a lot of the same things you've seen. And you and I have compared notes, as you said, on and off for a couple of decades. I, I think coming out of um, over the last decade or so, what I was observing was that the healthcare tech entrepreneur was relatively underserved. Uh, I'm actually quite in, active in the venture capital industry and, and, and think a lot about the forces at work in our industry. It's kind of a funny industry. There are probably 1,300 venture firms in the United States. And a relatively few of them focus on what is an enormous category, healthcare, obviously, it's $4 trillion to spend. But I felt like as somebody who's with entrepreneurs all day long, there was an opportunity to build a new firm. And so uh, seven or eight years ago, set out, um, didn't actually leave my office, but um, was co-located with my old firm. And we raised a dedicated healthcare tech fund. There, There are also forces that work in the venture industry. I think over time, investors in venture funds recognize that returns tend to be superior for firms that are more focused on specific markets versus more generalist. Obviously, there are firms that that disprove what I've just said, and there are world-class firms that, that are very much generalist in nature. But this is a very complicated industry, and it's hard to dabble in the healthcare industry. So I thought there was an opportunity to build a, a dedicated firm of size to service you know, great entrepreneurs like, like you, frankly. So what makes your approach special? I mean, obviously, you got a little bit of a secret sauce over at Flair. What's, what do you do that's so different? I think one thing we did that, in hindsight, has played out uh, remarkably well. By design, about half the capital come from strategics. And there's, there's two kind of schools of thought in my industry on how one should engage with strategics. Do you keep them kind of at arm's length and out from under the tent, or do you engage with them? And it struck me that a potential competitive advantage in the market, certainly in the minds of of entrepreneurs, is to be able to introduce them to executives who have enormous budgets that are trying to solve important problems that those entrepreneurs are building solutions for. 
And so about half the capital, we manage about half a billion dollars today, uh, come from 20 strategics. They represent the entire uh, healthcare industry, providers, payers, retailers, pharma, devices, lab companies. Um, and that's proven to be, I think, quite differentiated. And frankly, the, the healthcare tech category is uh, a little chaotic right now. There, you know, several hundred companies are being created every year. Uh, we we're going to hit an all-time record high in terms of funding activity this year, uh, and it it gets just increasingly harder for companies to break out and get recognized. So I think that was one thing we did well, and you know I think the the magic of venture firms that succeed is they collect investors, kind of a core team that have very different and at times opposing opinions. And you allow them to debate them. And over time, over many decisions, I think you'll be more often right than wrong. And so I, I'm super proud of the team we built. And COVID has been a massive accelerant for technology adoption. And as, as tragic as it is for literally billions and billions of people, for those of us fortunate enough to fund people who are building companies, it's, it's a pretty exciting time because the industry is in such urgent need of, of novel solutions. You know, I want to pick up on a couple of things that you said. You used the word, you know, chaotic to describe healthcare tech investing right now. I actually would use the word chaotic to describe the healthcare industry right now in the midst of COVID, right? And I agree with what you're saying around COVID really changing healthcare. You know, you always look for disruptive forces. And COVID has been a massive disruptor on so many different scales, whether it has disrupted people's individual lives. Uh, their family lives, their working lives, their personal lives. COVID has disrupted business and industry, you know? And so I find myself thinking a lot around what healthcare is going to look like in the next 12, 24, 36 months. What are you seeing around healthcare? How's it going to look different over that time frame? I fully agree with what you're saying. The system obviously has been forced to be virtual, on-demand, real-time, intelligent, predictive. We all knew that was inevitable over probably a couple of decades. It's odd to do it in a couple of years. And the, the obvious implication is the executives who run the system, payers, providers, uh, don't have the tools to navigate. You know, they're already confronting fee to value, that transformation. And now they're being forced to, to do cartwheels to get through this. You know, what's been successful in the last couple of years will be what we'll be focused on over the next couple of years, because the, the journey has just begun. The companies in our portfolio that tend to be scaling uh, faster than expectations, both on an absolute and a relative basis, are able to claim a cost reduction story with data and therefore attribution in the near term, sort of one or two budget cycles. They can tell an outcome story, and that tends to take three, four, five years. And, and again, data and attribution are the key, key dimension. And we're in an environment where those cycles have been collapsed, where you've got to be able to show outcomes and impact very, very quickly. My sense is in talking to some of the senior executives amongst our strategic LPs or, you know, frankly, across the industry like you're doing, there's a level of urgency that I've, I've never experienced before. And I've, I've been investing in this space for a couple of decades. I, I think the next two years define the next five years, the strategic agenda, and the next five years likely defines the next 20 years. So on top of everything else, there's this competitive urgency that is, it's, it's remarkable how palpable that is. 
if you look at other industries um, that have gone through these radical transformations, if you look at the advertising industry, it's you know 260, 270 billion of spend in the United States. And for 20 years, we've re-architected that industry. Today we have, I think, arguably 10 to 12 trillion dollars of venture capital-backed public equities, Google, Facebook, Twitter, that whole laundry list of companies. The healthcare industry is 17 times larger in spend. And you couldn't today credibly start another search engine company or another social media company. Maybe you could around the edges, but you couldn't create such a dominant franchise as what we have today. And those were started 20 years ago. So I think there's some parallels to healthcare that it does feel like we're going to be more predictably, more repeatably starting companies in this environment under these extraordinary pressures that will be very enduring big businesses. And you know, today they're small businesses, but in two to five years, they'll start to break out and in 10 to 20 years, we'll, we'll, they'll be household names. I feel that's, I think that's exactly kind of where we are at this knee of the curve of this sector. That's a really interesting perspective. And as I hear you talk about that, the one thing that I'd poke a hole in that theory of is the, you know, fragmentation of healthcare and the combination of the fact that there are some pretty big established players today in healthcare. You got CVS, you've got HCA, you've got Tenet, you've got, you know, here in Massachusetts, the Mass General System, you know, those players aren't going away. And so do you think there's room for, you know, new companies to get started and grow and become a Google? Or do you think it's more of a, they get started, they get incubated, and then, you know, Oracle, I mean, Oracle just bought Cerner, right? Do we start seeing one of these established tech players or a provider become the institutional amalgamator? Yeah, and, and the very fair critique of, of the analogy, and I freely admit it's got shortcomings, um, but as big as those companies are, relative to the market uh, opportunity, they're still relatively small. And so we have several thousand provider uh, hospital systems. Uh, and as dominant as we feel like Mass General Brigham is because we are, you know, we live in the shadow of that institution on a national scale, it's a relatively small player. I, I think what might be a, a distinction from the ad tech analogy is you may see over the next couple of years, pretty interesting M&A activity where a healthcare tech company will scale to be a few billion, 10 billion in value, be acquired by one of these larger incumbents. And that's a way that they begin to re-characterize who they are. They buy technology and they become technology companies. I, I think a lot of the payers are struggling with what does their future look like? Um, and you know they have these incredibly important positions in the industry, but when you distill it, they they are transaction processing companies. And how do they become more accountable for care and outcomes? Well, I think you'll start to see them acquire some interesting novel solutions, and then they sort of recharacterize what their purpose is over the next decade or so. But your, your, your critique is, is fair. My pushback is that venture investors get excited about industries that are measured in billion or 10 billion. And so I think it gives you a lot of degrees of freedom to build substantial businesses. They may not be $100 billion businesses, or three trillion like an Apple, but I think you could see a clear path of scaling to a several billion dollar outcome in, in a handful of years, you know, not, not two years, but not 20 years. You know, I think you've already started to see the payers transform themselves, right? You've got CVS, Aetna emerging, you're really trying to create that vertical. 
And, you know, CVS wants to be that front door of healthcare and they can make the back end money by saving the money, paying for all their Aetna subscribers. You've got United transforming itself, I feel like, daily through all of its different Optum lines. I think it would be a little bit more challenging for the Blues to transform themselves just simply due to their affiliations and the massive spread of that. But I really do think you're seeing the payers start to transform themselves. Yeah. And you, you've you obviously been in the front line of that. And, and I, I fully agree. And and I think what's interesting and maybe provocative is to see where they draw the line around clinical services. And obviously, we've seen CVS start to be very ambitious around primary care offerings and virtual care offerings. And you know that starts, you know, look at what they were 10, 20 years ago. To my point, you would never have thought that that's where they would be heading. They were a retailer. And now they're through these interesting strategic investments and acquisitions, they're recharacterizing their business to be, you know, more complete clinical provider potentially. I think it's fascinating. I, that's actually one of the things I wanted to talk to you about a little bit. You know, 10 years ago, I went to CVS to get razor blades and shampoo. You know, and now I'm going to go there for my annual physical. Potentially, it's interesting, right? But here's a really interesting stat that we unearthed. We were preparing some of the research here. Uh, according to Accenture, only 45% of Gen Z has a primary care physician today. Hmm. Astronomical. I mean, I have a PCP. It's kind of, I can't fathom not having one, right? And so we all know that primary care is the best way to lower costs because you're regularly seeing a PCP to keep you healthy. Cheaper to keep you healthier than treat you when you're sick. And it's kind of healthcare 101. But the question that you have to think about this is, does CVS or Walmart or, you know, Walgreens are also trying to get into this retailization of healthcare with PCPs. Do you think they can really step in and deliver true longitudinal care? Or do you think they're going to provide more episodic primary care? Oh, I sprained my ankle. Kind of, you know, minute clinic plus. I, I think for the general PCP opportunity, it's more of the latter. I think you're right. Um, you know, for a whole host of reasons, I don't know if they're footprint, the store footprints allow themselves to be really full service PCP providers. And I mean, I also just, every time I go into my CVS, it's a different pharmacist. So I think there's a labor retention churn issue that you as a, any individual, any of us really want longitudinal care. You don't want to see a different PCP every time you walk in. Um, so I think that's a, that's a real issue, but, but there are an awful number of non-acute cases that are episodic and that's a perfectly acceptable format. And and I think what's, so I think where they're going to, the retailers will get where you'll see them more active in clinical service around some specialty services. And, you know, I, I think what CVS has made some very, really interesting acquisitions to be in the home, uh, you know, infusion services. So I think you'll see some of these more acute specialty services and they may not even have the, there may be a branding issue that, that wouldn't even identify them with CVS. And it's shocking that data stat you just cited, 45%, just that's like a time bomb waiting for that generation as they age. They're going to be unaffiliated with the healthcare system and they'll have these conditions that'll surprise them and just be super expensive. So I, I, I'm really excited about what, what the retailers are doing in, in primary care because I think, it, frankly, it, it's good for all of us that people have better access to quality care. One of the things that get gets me really excited about our strategy is ultimately technology is not not to sound sort of grandiose a democratizing force for quality and access and so we're actually spending a lot of time thinking about medicaid and are we now at a point where we can bring you know mgb like care to populations that have been disenfranchised and i think cvs you know they have that front door they have um 
the ability to really engage and activate a lot of a lot of different populations in, in, in the country. I spent a lot of time thinking about who's going to consume these services. You know, is it my 17 year old daughter? Is it me and my generation or is it my parents, you know, who are in their late 70s? I have a hard time seeing my parents decide to go to CVS. On the flip side, I can see my daughter, you know, a year from now when she's 18 and my wife can no longer take her to the pediatrician. Like, she's like, yeah, I'm going to get my health care at CVS. I'm too busy. I got other things going on with my life. Fully agree. And, and those are the most tech savvy parts of the population. And so this notion of digital front door, they're going to they're going to intuit it. They're going to get it. They're going to engage. There's a risk here, though, as we start to empower each of us more and more to take ownership and make decisions. Um, I'm not sure that generation is ready to they'll, they'll need a real trusted advisor to navigate anything that's more than a cold. I actually also think it's I mean, I don't know where you got your COVID shots, but uh, I went to a CBS. And so we're also seeing that role in a different light. That generation, I think, is going to grow up engaging with those types of um, uh, those kind of offerings very different than than your parents. My parents certainly would. It's interesting, you know, I got my shot at CBS too. One of the most interesting things about the shot, and where I almost say my shot is value add, quote unquote, is the digital record that came with it. Yeah. Because suddenly I was able to link up my clear pass with my CVS record. And I don't walk around with my little yellow card or white card saying I got vaccinated. And I go, hey, here's a QR code. Scan me in. I've been vaccinated. Super powerful. Yeah. And as you and I have talked about over the years, you know, the arm wrestling in the industry is who's going to manage the arc of our healthcare journey? Not quite cradle to grave, but certainly from, you know, your mid to late teens until you're, you have your own family, who's going to manage that? And wow, that is very sticky when, when you start to see all your data on your device in your pocket. Yeah, it really is. You know, a a kind of tangential theme to what we're talking about here is the shifting of procedure volumes as well. I mean, the, the hospitals are really changing, you know, so some of our data shows that, you know, between 2016 and 2019, the number of patients that had uh, a procedure in ASC increased by 16%, whereas hospitals really only increased by just under 6%. Now, granted, hospitals had more procedures to grow with, but you can't deny the fact that there's almost double, more than double-digit growth going on in the ASCs. Does that impact some of your investment philosophies? Are you thinking more about kind of that distribution of care? Yeah, I think it, it hits us in sort of indirect and direct ways as we move to a more distributed system. And you're absolutely right. You know, the, the forces are pushing uh, a lot of these uh, procedures into other settings. You know, one area that we've gotten very excited around is just how do you provide the security infrastructure around this distributed um, delivery system, much more distributed. And so we have a number of really exciting investments that are trying to uh, address, you know, you now have all these new uh, vulnerabilities that you've inter- introduced, but all the enabling infrastructure around that is something that we we're very excited about. And you know, they have the, the big providers have sort of a similar dilemma that I think the retailers you have a lot of this stranded assets in real estate, and how do you repurpose that? Um, so it may be slow to move, but I think it inevitably moves. And as I said, we have nine provi- you know, world-class provider systems. You'd recognize all of them as, as investment partners. And you know, they're, they, all of them have chief strategy officers now who are thinking deeply about how do we extend our brand into these non-traditional settings? And you know, what are the boundaries of our offerings as some of this gets disintermediated? 
Uh, and ultimately, technology will be the, the enabling infrastructure for that. You know, you keep talking a lot about technology as the infrastructure. Let's pivot and talk a little bit about kind of virtual care and telemedicine. Do those words mean the same thing to you, virtual care and telemedicine? Uh, I think it ultimately they, they are different. Um, telemedicine for us, at least in our shop, feels more like a, a reactive modality. And virtual care for us implies a much richer set of offerings and more of a anticipatory or proactive approach to providing care to certain populations. So obviously the analytics that we've developed over the last five or 10 years of industry has allowed us to much more exquisitely identify at-risk populations uh, and engage them in very novel ways. And so as we think about virtual care, I think we've made four or five virtual care investments this year. That feels profoundly different for us than just a telemedicine console. So we have a handful of investments recently that, that I would call virtual care and not call telemedicine. I think a lot about that as well in terms of, you know, remote patient monitoring and chronic condition management. You know, you never want to call a pregnancy a chronic condition, but you think about that, uh, you know, nine month continued engagement where you want to continue to monitor the pregnancy, but you don't have to see your doctor every day, but collecting all that data is really important. You can identify trends over time. Yeah, It's those kinds of virtual care that I think the technology really enables us to be able to do. Yes, yes, f fully agree. And it'll be interesting to see if I'm holding my breath at all, it'll be over the next three to five years to see the impact on outcomes, because ultimately that's what we need to see. I, I was struck by, I read something out of CMS recently, this is not directly related to that, but of the 50 test models that they ran over the last number of years, only like half a dozen of them actually had a material cost savings. It will be interesting to see if these models, you know, we all expect and intuit that they'll have real profound impacts, but we need to see the data ultimately. You know, the data is really interesting. And, you know, I got some interesting stats here around kind of usage of telemedicine uh, in the pandemic. I love kind of some of your reactions. You know, when we hit the pandemic start in April 2020, telemedicine, spi telemedicine spiked nearly 24 million visits per month. You know, and, you know, it's now kind of normalized, you know, over the past six months, it's been about nine to 11 million per month. That's pretty consistent from like June to December. What does that tell you about the role of te telemedicine right, in terms of that massive spike and coming down? Yeah. So obviously we saw it in our portfolio in early 2020. Uh, it went from nominal single digit percent telemedicine to virtually 100 percent clearly. Uh, it feels like in the companies that are relevant, it's normalizing around 40 or 50 percent of all visits. So our, our feeling is it's kind of table stakes. All of our service companies have to have that capability. My suspicion is that you or I as patients will ultimately want to see a provider face-to-face. Uh, -face. Um, and so I think it probably normalizes something, you know, closer to 20 or 25%. I, I've seen data where if you aggregate all visits, it's something like mid-single digit percent. So I Ultimately, great healthcare is a human-to-human -human interaction that's not uh, over a screen. And there's something around empathy. You know, maybe it's just a, a placebo effect, but you always feel better once you've seen your doctor and they've really consulted with you. You you feel ease. Yeah. And that's that's hard to get virtually. It's the old proverbial laying of the hands, right? They put the, you know, yeah. they put their hands on your neck. They feel your lymph nodes. They bang your knee. Get your tiger reflexes. Yeah. yeah, my reflexes are good. I'm happy. And if you feel better for it. So, yeah. but but it 
it's not going to go to zero, clearly. And I, I think the interesting thing as an investor is we now have uh, kind of two vectors. We have a number of kind of general platform companies, Amwell's terrific and Teladoc, et cetera. Uh, and then we have a number of specialized offerings. And, you know, given comorbidities and the condition of some of, you know, many of, of people in our country, they need multiple specialists. And so how does that consolidate and aggregate? Do the, do the platform companies start to acquire those other virtual care companies to move into higher value cases? Or do the virtual care companies aggregate themselves? So, you know, obviously, Livongo and Teladoc is an example of the former. I think so. I think there's kind of a second wave of M&A activity that, you know, frankly, you or I would would welcome. We we don't want to have to call up five different you know platforms. We want to have one point of contact that'll help us navigate. And so, I, I actually think that's quite an interesting um, kind of over the next couple of years. My earlier comment on how the next two to the years define the next five years. I, I think that's going to be part of what we're going to see unfold. I do too. And, you know, selfishly, I really want to control my healthcare from the palm of my hand, you know, uh, my Apple or Google device, right? I want to have it all synchronized there. I want to interact with all of my doctors. And I think whoever controls my interaction on my device is going to ultimately be the uh, arbiter of my healthcare, right? That's what's going to drive me. And, and even so, the generations behind us uh, are even more attached to that type of stuff. Although, you know, I, I, I'll say something a little provocative and, I, and I, I'm undoubtedly wrong. I think a lot about some, you know, maybe this starts to get into the RPM space. There's now some infrastructure in a lot of our homes that, you know, think of the Alexa platform that can uniquely activate and incent and engage us in ways that uh, are subtle, but quite profound. And if you think about, you know, who could take risk on us longitudinally, it introduces yet another sort of platform company that could profile us in very interesting and unique ways. You know, in this whole morass, you've got a lot of companies out there, a lot of technologies that I think have the ability over time to augment what their core offerings are to be actually quite comprehensive uh, providers. And you know, I don't think we're going to get our care from Alexa anytime soon, but but the ability for them to inform, incent, activate, change behavior. I just It's just provocative to think where these things all start to converge. It, it, it is, but it starts to almost to create a problem because you start to get a signal from the noise problem, right? So my Alexa can collect how many data points on me every day in all the different rooms in my house of what I'm eating, is Justin exercising, you know, is he drinking three beers in front of the couch and eating a bag of popcorn? At some point, my primary care provider doesn't really care Right. But if you, you take all this data and then how many patients are in his practice, you send it all in. How does he identify the signal from the noise? You're going to need some pretty smart people writing algorithms to say, you know, OK, no exercise plus three beers a night, plus six bags of popcorn. OK, you got to call Justin. He's not being so healthy. Yeah. Well, this is where you guys play a role. Definitive. They're going to be data aggregators and data curators that will deliver to the PCP just the answer that they got that the PCP wants. Right. And they're going to suck in and multiplex all these different, really informative data. We saw at Iora when we went virtual, we started to see into people's homes that we had never seen before. And we couldn't digitize that insight. But our providers were seeing, you know, are people at risk? You know, and it's a small leap to see who is the, per you know, 
to look at your purchasing behavior. And then does that begin to create a feedback loop? And obviously, Definitive is hopefully going to play an important role in, in helping us think through this over time. How do you aggregate disparate data sets to draw interesting conclusions? You know, it may not be a critical set of insights, but, you know, if you have a, you know, a one to 100 scale, it starts to inform that kind of nuance. But the point is, you know, with technology and the pervasiveness of it, we can be passively and intelligently monitored that has clinical implications, hopefully for the good. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. Big Brother's watching, though. You never know. <laughs> you know, you know. when we were prepping for this podcast, you, you mentioned the concept to me of data liquidity in healthcare. What is that? Yeah, I think for us, and it's akin to what we were just talking about, you know, we all know this. It's, it's incredibly siloed. It's disparate, different formats, different standards. You know, we have a couple of companies that, that we are super excited about that can begin to uh, normalize and de-identify that type of data, those data sets and enable some, some are directly going after kind of drug development. So it, it's super powerful in, in thinking about clinical trial design or uh, post-market approval processes that, um, uh, and so for us, this notion of data liquidity, which I take your point, it's a little bit uh, fuzzy around the edges, but it's deriving greater value from any one data set because you can munge it with other data sets that that may not have been obvious to munge together, but some really interesting insights can come from that. And you shared with me some of the data that, you, that you're looking at that I thought was fascinating that I would never have thought that you could uh, multiplex different data. Uh, I thought it was fascinating some of the, the work that you're doing. So that, that for us is what data liquidity is. And it, it ultimately, it's, it's those platforms that enable that. I always say, you know, we are awash in data, but we're lacking in intelligence. And, yep. you know, I think the job of all technology companies right now is really to try to extract that intelligence out of it and make it useful, right? What can you do that's really useful with it? Yeah, fully agree. So, you know, as we start to get to the end of our time here together, I kind of got one last wrap up question for you. So if you are an entrepreneur right now, I know you are an entrepreneur, but if you're an entrepreneur in healthcare IT, what kind of company would you start right now and who would you try to sell to? Providers, IDNs, consumers, tech companies? You know, we've got a lot of people who are listening here say, I want to get Michael to invest in my company. Like, what's interesting to you right now? Uh, I, I think the customer that we find most compelling are the ones that bear the risk and the cost. And so I think in this world, the employers are interesting, the payers are interesting. Um, and I think version 1.0 of our sector over the last decade was really focused on the consumer as the customer. And obviously there are example, wild, wildly successful examples that disprove that. But um, I, I think the complexity of the data they're being provided, just it, the consumer is disadvantaged in owning this journey. And so then who owns the risk and the reward from managing this journey? And, and so, you know, we think the employers have a very big voice here. So we like solutions that sell into the employers. We like uh, actually, solutions that sell into the payer. Different set of reasons. We, we think there's a lot of, uh, you know, if you went through the CIO's budget of a provider for the next three years, you know, stack rank their urgent priorities. And we've made a handful of investments that try and address their urgent pri um, priorities, like around credentialing. So we think there's interesting uh, opportunities in the provider space. But the urgency, I think, is around those that are having to take risk and develop solutions that help them take risk. I Iora was a terrific investment for us. We were the first investor in Bright Health. 
notwithstanding where it's currently traded. It's an amazing company. And so we think there are interesting novel risk-bearing entities. Uh, for us, th- those may be more in the virtual care space that we find really exciting. And then, you know, the meta themes you and I have been talking about uh, around data liquidity and infrastructure, you know, probably a third of our companies sell into the pharmaceutical industry. And so uh, they have enormous budgets and under s- significant pressure to, to buy novel solutions. Um, so those, those tend to be the things that we're excited about. Well, Michael, thank you very much for your time there. Really enjoyed talking with you. Justin, all the best. I've watched your career, your meteor career, and this is a <laughs> great effort to engage our community. I really welcome you, you doing this. Thanks for listening to Definitively Speaking, a Definitive Healthcare podcast. Please join me next time, where I'm joined by Todd Bellamere and Brittany Moran-Mizadri, and we'll break down a number of Michael's ideas and explore how they could transform the healthcare industry. If you like what you've heard today, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about how healthcare commercial intelligence can support your business, follow us on Twitter at DefinitiveHC or visit us at DefinitiveHC.com. Until next time, take care and please stay healthy.